Lord, we just thank you for this tremendous opportunity to gather in your name. And Lord, we're asking for your presence to guide us and lead us. Lord, in these days and times, Lord, how we need to hear a word from you. May that word come. May we be able to hear it. May we respond to it. And may we be able to worship you. Not only, Lord, with our mouths, but in our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe the first time Lance came was here. I think Lance was 1984. Uh, Sally, is that right? It's been a long time. I guess that's 30 years ago. And you don't look a day older. <laughs> uh, you always have to have somebody on the front row who's, who's honest. We are, we're blessed. I, I think uh, Lance is someone we don't have to introduce anymore. And we're just, we're just glad to have you here uh, sharing what's on your heart. And I won't tell everybody what you said in the meeting room a while ago. But he's full to overflowing. Right? Isn't that what he said, Dave? Something like that? Full to overflowing? <laughs> He's going to get on me later. Um, I think Lance is prepared to really speak honestly to us and to this nation. And also to the nation of Israel and the other nations and what's happening. But we need to hear his words tonight. So let's prepare ourselves. Lance, welcome. Let's all stand and let's just give him a little bit. Thank you very much. If I knew you were going to have an offering, I wouldn't have bought this 300-year-old cane that's been in my family for so long. But it was Michael who told me after I fell down the stairs, and I hadn't been drinking, I fell down the stairs and damaged myself. I was in agony for two weeks and for two months further, uh, pain. But Michael said, you should use that old family cane instead of the one you normally use, the silver-topped one. But I think most people will probably look at that and say, well, he doesn't need any cash. <laughs> How wrong you are. <laughs> okay, I will take the, the book now. Will you turn with me to Zechariah to a very well-known passage of Scripture in Zechariah and chapter 12. I'm going to read from verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus saith the Lord, who stretcheth forth the heavens, layeth the foundation of the earth, formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling unto all the peoples round about. And upon Judah also shall it be in the siege against Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the peoples, all that burden themselves with it shall be sore wounded, and all the nations of the earth shall be gathered together against it. That's as far as I will go. Then I would like to add to that from the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel and chapter 22 and verse 30. And I sought for a man among them, that should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Further word of prayer, shall we pray? Beloved Lord, we're so glad that we're here this evening. And Lord, we believe that in your presence anything can happen. And therefore, Lord, we ask you that you will give a double anointing 
to the speaking of your word, that beyond the human voice, we will hear your voice. And that, Lord, um, for our hearing, it may be also doubly anointed, that we shall hear what you want to say. Hear us, beloved Lord. We commit ourselves to you, and we shall be very careful to give you all the praise and all the worship of our hearts for answering this, our prayer. 2,000, some 2,600 years ago, the prophet Zechariah prophesied. What he had to say was far more relevant and more meaningful, more significant than tomorrow morning's newspaper. He called it the burden of the word of the Lord. I feel a little bit of sympathy with him. Because he used a very unusual Hebrew word, masha. It simply means the kind of burden or load you put on a donkey or a mule or a camel. It can be heavy. You place it on the donkey or the mule or the camel so that you don't have to bear it. He said this word from the Lord was on him. The Lord had placed this load, this massive problem in a sense, upon him. I feel a bit like that. I remember Jeremiah. He was always arguing with the Lord. I had the greatest understanding of Jeremiah. Um, he, he, he said, every now and again he says, Lord, why do you tell me to do this? You know they won't listen anyway. They're not going to do anything, so why tell me to do it? You're just getting me into trouble. I shall be put into a slime pit, or I'll put in prison, or a dungeon, or something else. But very few prophets quite like Jeremiah. But God gave him the same kind of word he gave to Zechariah. It was a burden, and he had to give it. I feel a bit like that this evening. I spoke last year, and the transcripts of those three messages... became the basis of this book, The Battle of the Ages. And everyone who's now complaining or writing to me and saying that they think I'm nuts, I tell them that it's Larry's fault, <laughs> not mine, and that they should now write to him and address him. <laughs> the fact of the matter, for those of you who were with us last year, as I spoke very much about the paganization of the so-called Christian nations of the Western world. These nations that saw the gospel being preached to them, the word of God being given to them, and the huge awakenings in nation after nation, not only here in these parts, but also in the United Kingdom, in the Scandinavian nations, in Germany, after all, before Nazism came to Germany, God chose Germany to be the birthplace of the Reformation, and he chose it because of German character, the intensity of the German character, meant that once they got hold of the truth of God's word, they wouldn't let it go. And the whole might of the Roman Catholic Church came against them 
But Martin Luther, the, whom the Catholic Church called the drunken monk, stood against it and the whole of Europe was changed and indeed the world. It is very sad that it was in the same nation that Nazism was born. And the reason it happened was threefold. First of all, supposedly Martin Luther authored the book. It was entitled Against the Jews and Their Lies. Whether he did or not, we cannot be sure. Johannes Fesius, my dear friend, who's now with the Lord, was in Württemberg. And he went to the um, whole center where all of Martin Luther's books and writings have been kept. And he spoke with the curator. And he, when he looked at all these thousands of books, and essays, he said to the curator, how in the world could Martin Luther have written all this? He was such a busy man, preaching here, preaching there, going everywhere. How could he? And the curator said, that is our problem. Because we are researching to find out whether some of these books and essays were written by other people in his name. Then Johannes said, do you think that against the Jews and their lies by supposedly Martin Luther was one of them? And the curator said, that is one of the books we are looking into. Because he said, within the circle of Martin Luther was one colossal anti-Semite. And we very seriously wonder whether he wrote that book in Martin Luther's name after he died. But never mind who wrote it, that book became official Nazi propaganda. Every German school had to have copies of that book for youngsters to read and study. That was the first step in the collapse of Germany. The second was higher criticism. Suddenly there was this idea that the word of God should be investigated. Was it the word of God? How much Jewish exaggeration got into it? How much of Jewish ideas got into it in order to bolster the national pride of the Jewish people? There were those who actually said that the God of the Old Testament was a bloodthirsty deity who lived on the blood of the sacrificed animals. That led to the de-Judaization of the New Testament. Thousands of Christian believers lost their faith because of the trashing of the Word of God. It became, for most theological seminaries, the basis of their studies. For instance, I don't want to bore you stiff, but um, uh, you take this whole thing about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Now you have a whole theory that is taught in nearly every theological seminary. Whether here, or whether in Europe, or Britain, it's called the J the J-E, the A, and the P. 
theory. That is, that someone very uncleverly took all these documents that were written by different people and shoved them together. They suggested that Moses was not too clever in the way he took all the things. But you can tell them, they said, because when you had J.E., Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God, that was one document. When you had Jehovah, that was another by another. When you had Elohim, God, that was another. And then the priests had their little piece all in. Deuteronomy was basically written by the priests. Do you know that the Hebrew University, where most of the professor's mother tongue is Hebrew, cannot find a single evidence for this idea that has spread through Christian theology and has destroyed the faith of so many in God's word? That was the second step that destroyed Germany. The third was even more amazing. In 1909, there was a conference of German pastors and leaders from all the Christian denominations in Germany, in Germany. And they discussed whether the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a valid experience and whether the gifts of the Holy Spirit were valid for the 19th, 20th century. Unanimously, they passed a resolution that the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit was demonic. That meant that at the beginning of the 20th century, Germany had a spiritual, moral vacuum. Hitler filled it. It took the whole German people into its grasp. German churches had pictures of Hitler and the red, white and black flag of the German people with the swastika the broken cross could you believe that it could be possible for the nation that was the birthplace of the reformation which spread all through Europe and the world, could be the birthplace of Nazism. That is what happens when a nation is paganized. It is as serious as that. Now, David will give you the other side of the story. So I'm very happy to hit you all hard this evening because he will bandage you up and mollycoddle you a little. But I am not going to mollycoddle you at all. I want to tell you that I believe that there is no repentance in the United States at present. God has sent tornado after tornado, storm after storm. You've even had an earthquake in all places in Bowling Green, which actually damaged the Washington Monument so that it had to be closed for five months. Manhattan was shaken by the same earthquake, which as they said never before known in experience. 
But nobody seems to take it to heart. Why is God doing this? You have had the worst winter, I understand, in years. Why do you think the Lord is doing this? California's had the worst drought he has had in well over a century or two. Why? I remember that your dear John Kerry came to Israel. The day he came to Israel, we had 18 inches of snow. I thought it very interesting because every time you hear the phrase in Scripture, peace, peace, where there is no peace, three times it comes at least, in, um, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, if you follow it on, you, the Lord says he shows his displeasure through the weather. He said there will be gales and hailstones and freeze-ups. And he said... The grape will not be on the vine, and the figs will not be on the fig tree. But doesn't look as if anyone listens. He came. I had 18 inches of snow just outside my bedroom window. I couldn't believe it the next morning when we woke up. I mean, that does happen in Jerusalem, but uh, it came so suddenly, uh, unexpectedly. Well, he landed at the airport. There was a car and a chauffeur, uh, and he got into it and, and went off to see Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah and drove into a snowdrift. <laughs> and he and his chauffeur tried to get the car out of the snowdrift and were unable to do so. The Palestinian security officers never came to look for him or to try and find what had happened, but the IDF did come and rescued him. And then he said to them, I thought that Israel was an industrialized country with a highly developed system and not a third world country. I think the Lord heard. <laughs> the IDF turned the car around, he went off to see Netanyahu and drove into another snowdrift. <laughs> then when he came back to the States, you had nothing but freeze-ups. I think the Lord sometimes laughs. As it says in the scripture, he holds them in derision. My point is very simple. If people don't understand that the Lord is trying to say something and do not repent and seek him humbly, then the judgments will become more severe and more severe and more severe. I remember Derek Prince years ago saying that when the Lord judges a nation, he does it very gently to begin with. Then he waits to see if there is any response. If there is none, it's a more severe judgment. Then he waits. This is what he did with Egypt. He waited, he waited, he waited through nine judgments. And finally came the catastrophic one. The firstborn in every family died, and all the firstborn in the cattle died. The Lord doesn't enjoy judgment. Now you may say to me, well, why should the United States be judged? Good question. Britain was judged. I remember very clearly when Alan Redpath stood in the pulpit of the Baptist Church in Richmond, Surrey, England. His face was red. He was shouting at the top of his voice with great gusto, 
God will judge the British people and the British Empire for what they are doing to the Holocaust survivors of Europe. He said, as surely as I stand here, God will break up the British Empire and Britain will become an offshore island. I remember a number of people getting up and walking out. And I thought, being only a youngster, I thought, oh my goodness, they must have a luncheon appointments. <laughs> and the pastor's gone on rather long this morning, and they've got up to go out. But I found out afterwards they were all patriots. They believed very much in Britain. They were absolutely upset with Eleanor Park, that he could have dared to say such a thing about the British people and to mention the Royal Navy as actually stopping these boats filled with Holocaust survivors, trying to reach the promised land. But I lived to see the collapse of the empire and Britain becoming an offshore island of Europe. She doesn't really know whether she should be in Europe or out of Europe. All that's the big discussion in the whole of Britain. Should we be in? Should we be out? Now the Scots are wondering whether they should secede from Britain and all the rest of it. Just wait. Did you note what Zachariah said? This is 2,600 years ago. He said there will come a day when all the nations will come against Jerusalem. Then he said the most remarkable thing before that. He said, God himself will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling unto all the peoples round about. Now, you have to understand this. Do you remember Nehemiah was a cup-bearer? It was a very common thing in the ancient world to assassinate unwanted leaders by putting a little bit of poison in their wine. They didn't do it in the meal because most people were sensible enough to tell them there's something funny about this meal. Don't, don't eat anymore. But wine, there are thousands of different wines. Of course, I shouldn't say this to you, dear Americans, because I know you're all temperance people. But I mean, you know, they, they, there are so many different tastes to wines. So the favorite way of bumping off unwanted leaders or people standing in the way of something was to uh, put a little bit of wine in the goblet. Can you believe that God says that in the day when the nations will come against Jerusalem, I will put a poison in the goblet of wine. And anyone who takes that goblet wrongly, not according to divine destiny, but according to their ideas, will discover they have rendered themselves insensible, if not dead. Of course, the cupbearer used to always have to drink it first. Then the emperor or sultan would watch. If he keeled over, you didn't drink it. <laughs> and when they carried him out, you knew, oh, I'm all right because I didn't taste it. You could, if you were a, a, a cupbearer, you couldn't get a life insurance. It was such a common way of getting rid of things. Would you believe that the Lord would use such a picture of Jerusalem? But every one of our neighbors wants to alter the divine destiny of Jerusalem. Every one of them. Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq. Yemen, Egypt, Libya, Algeria, 
They all want to change the course of history. They want Jerusalem to be an Islamic city. Well, look at these nations. Most of them spend their time murdering one another. There is no way you can look in the whole Middle East where there's peace and beauty in one of our neighbors. Because they have this incredible passion to take Jerusalem out of its divinely placed destiny and make it something different, they are committing national suicide. When I think of Syria with a a minimum of 150,000 Syrians dead and 200 million refugees with their homes destroyed, their goods completely destroyed, flooding into all the countries. It's incredible. But then Zechariah says something else. He says, in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. That is a stone that is very heavy. Any nation, any people, superpower, federation of nations like the United Nations, the European Union or others, that decide that Jerusalem ought not to be there, it's politically unacceptable to be Israeli, to be Jewish. We must take it and change it. We will either divide the city into, or we'll make the city an international city. <laughs> How, whatever they think, the point is they want to change the divine destiny of Jerusalem. And it says anyone who takes that huge stone, lifts it, and puts it there because it's more politically acceptable and will bring everyone happiness, <laughs> will rupture themselves. That means that their lifting days are over. When you, most of you here who ruptured, who've suffered a rupture, know very well it doesn't necessarily mean you die. What it does mean is you can't lift anything anymore. Someone's got to lift things for you. This is what happened to the Ottoman Empire. They tried to do it. They ruptured themselves. Who's ever heard of the Ottoman Empire? Every time I ever speak about the Ottoman Empire here in the States, people look at me in a strange way. Ottoman? But the only Ottoman we know is something you lie on. You know, I mean, what is this Ottoman Empire? It was one of the greatest empires of world history, in a way. Huge. What about the British Empire, upon which the sun never set, and which had been the cause of the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth? Because there were so many people at the top in the government who really were believers in the Lord Jesus, saved by him, born of the Spirit. But Britain tried to change the course of history when they were given by the League of Nations the mandate for what was at that time called Palestine. Now, no Arab would ever call himself a Palestinian in those days. I remember speaking, when I lived in Egypt, speaking to a fellow, a nice fellow, and, and I said, where were you from? And he said, oh, I'm from the Holy... No, I said, you're a Palestinian. And he, I had to sort of scrape him down from the ceiling. I mean, he said, Palestinian! I am not a Palestinian. I am an Arab. Well, I was very happy to get out alive. But the interesting thing was that Mr. Begin called himself a Palestinian Jew. 
<laughs> Dear Mr. Begum, Menachem Begum, he called himself a Palestinian Jew. That's how strange and stupid this whole thing is. Now we have the Palestinians and the Israelis, and they're fighting all the time. It was the Jews who called themselves Palestinians in the old days, in the mandate. They said that we're Palestinian Jews. No Arab would ever bring that word upon his lips. They were Arabs. Now, to bring me to my dreadful point. The United States has a hand in the division of the promised land, in an abrogation of a divine covenant that God himself made with Abraham and his seed, he called it an everlasting covenant. Now, somebody clever people try to tell me that in Hebrew, ulam does not mean everlasting, in spite of the fact that the Lord says that his love is from everlasting to everlasting. Ulam... From everlasting to everlasting. Although we're told his love is everlasting, his faithfulness is everlasting, apparently it is only for a period of time, so watch out. (laughs) It means that when the Lord gets tired of you, he'll say, drop dead. I'm finished with you. My everlasting love is only for time, for a certain period. It's nonsense. God's love and faithfulness and mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. God made a covenant with our father Abraham and with his seed, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac, not through Esau, but through Jacob. Now with Ishmael, God made a separate covenant. And it is incredible how God has kept that covenant. So much of the oil in the world is in the hands of Islamic nations. The seed of Ishmael. But now let me again come back to this dreadful point. I'm sorry to tell you that there is an American hand in the division of the land. And very sadly, it began with the president who is born again, Bush. He believed that the only answer to the trouble in the Middle East was to divide the promised land. Think for a moment. The Almighty himself made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. If you have any problem on this, Read very carefully Genesis and you will hear how the Lord told Abraham take a goat kill it split it in two take a sheep kill it split it in two take a turtle turtle doves kill them split it in two The way a covenant was made in the ancient world, you know the word covenant in Hebrew is brit, and brit means cut. It was made through blood. And when they made these covenants, this is between ungodly tribes or whatever who didn't know the Lord at all, they would, they would take animals, split them into two, put them one on the other side, and then the two parties would walk up and down between them. 
this became a pact, an everlasting covenant. God did it with Abraham. Do you remember when he fell into a deep sleep after killing the animals, putting them on either side, and then when he awoke with a horror of deep darkness, he saw what was like a furnace of fire walking up and down between the slain animals and birds. Then God said to Abraham, I am making a covenant to you. We call it the promised land. Now, when I was first saved 70 years ago, I remember that everyone spoke about the promised land. It was very common amongst Christians to speak about the promised land. I never hear it now. Never. I never hear anyone say promised land. They call the Holy Land or Israel or sometimes Palestine. But I mean, they never call it the promised land. When you say the promised land, immediately comes the question, who promised it? God. To whom did he promise it? To Abraham. And to his seed? To Isaac. Not Ishmael. He made a separate covenant with Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. Now, whether it was a born again president or not, it doesn't make any difference. The fact of the matter is, if you take the covenant of God, and basically say to the Almighty, you've made a mistake. This is not politically acceptable. We are going to change it. We're a superpower. We have the power to do it. We're going to change this thing. We're going to carve it into two. There's going to be an Israeli state and a Palestinian state living side by side in love. <laughs> it's a joke. I know this is a silly question, but let me ask it. It may bring it home. If you were the Almighty, what would you do? Some little finite human being comes and tells the Almighty, you've made a mistake. This is just not politically acceptable anymore. We've got to change it. What would you do? I tell you what he has done. He has brought trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble upon the Western nation. It began with the collapse of the whole economy and the recession that has shaken the whole Western world, so-called Christian world. And it's gone from there to the weather. Of course, they all tell us it's warming. Some people tell us it's an ice age that's coming, not warming. But, I mean, whether it's an ice age or warming, I don't think it's anything to do uh, with human beings, basically. I think it's God. I think God is so sick to death of this whole attitude of our modern society that he is trying to wake up those once called Christian nations. But instead of there being any waking up, what are we doing? We're paganizing the nation. We are literally going back to pagan ideas, to heathen ideas, in the question of marriage, in the question of the family, in the question of human beings as such. It's exactly what the European Union said to Pope Benedict when he said to him, at least, when you're in the preamble to uh, uh, the 
the the um, producing of European and Anglo-Saxon civilization, surely you can say a source was the gospel and the Bible. They refused. They said, no, the source of European and Anglo-Saxon civilization is humanism, Hellenism. Now we see it. Of course... I'm sure that some of you might think I'm just slightly dotty to even sort of say things like this. But it goes much further than that. When they built the European Parliament, do you know how they built it? According to an old oil painting by a Dutch painter of the Tower of Babel. And if you look at that European Parliament building in Strasbourg, there you will see the whole thing built like the Tower of Babel. But even more remarkable, outside the European, um, uh, I can't remember the name for it, but it is the top thing, Brusso, the you have a stylized bull, and on the stylized bull is a stylized lady. This is a legend. Where does it come from? From Greek mythology, Hellenic mythology. When the god Zeus fell in love with Europa, She would not respond to him. But she became tired of a certain walk she was doing, so he changed himself into a bull and said that if she liked to climb up on his back, he would transport her. He did transport her and rape her. Would you believe that that is outside of the European High Commission? Well, what I'm simply saying is this. I think the Lord has sought for a man to stand in the gap that he will not completely destroy these nations that were once called Christian. But I fear he may be saying, I have found none. Our Christianity is far too comfortable, too pleasant. We don't want to be disturbed. We want to be able to have a kind of church assembly where everything is nice. We have carpets from wall to wall. We have ministers of this and ministers of that and wonderful choirs and great organs and everything else. We don't want to be disturbed. We want someone who preaches a good message on Sunday and we can all talk about it over a Sunday meal and say, wasn't it interesting what the pastor said this morning? But we don't want anything that would challenge us or disturb us or turn us upside down. Oh, no, no, no. Nothing like that. We, We don't go to church to be disturbed. We go to church to be lulled to sleep. Or you say, I think you're being unbelievably hard upon us. Just wait. Isn't that what's happening? Where are the people prepared to give up time, give up themselves to become a sacrifice and seek the Lord in intercession, not just prayer, but intercession? Because intercession begins with the knowledge of the will of God. Where are they? I think that the burden that came upon Zechariah, that he called 
a heavy burden normally put on a mule or donkey or camel. He felt God had placed on him. It made him uncomfortable. But what he has said in the 21st century is relevant. If the United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom, and the United Nations persist in this idea of somehow forcing upon Israel a peace process and contradicting the covenants that God has made and the divine destiny of Jerusalem itself, I think we are going to see colossal judgments. I hope this resonates in you. Because you, me, we're all involved. I think the Lord has been incredibly gracious when he shook Bowling Green of all places. I have a friend who is a realtor, we say in English a state agent, and he had a group of people who were very interested in this building, and they said, how, how strong is this building? Oh, he said, absolutely, marvelously strong. He'd hardly got the words out of his mouth, and the whole place began to sway. And they, were so, they all rushed out. He had no idea. He was shocked. He thought there was something wrong with the building he was trying to say. Well, they've had study, we've had it surveyed and everything else. But it was a, an earthquake 43 miles west, which affected Washington, affected the Washington Monument, I've already said it, and even touched Manhattan. I think the Lord was incredibly gracious. Nobody was killed, no other problem. You would have thought that Christians would say, what is this? What's What is the Lord doing? Why? I think it's all to do with Israel. (laughs) Israel, with all her faults and failings, is nevertheless a fulfillment of God's prophetic word. She is the physical evidence on this earth, of the absolute authenticity, relevance, and inspiration of the Word of God. Come against her, dismember her, take her down a few notches, and what do you do? You find that the Almighty takes you down a few notches, more than a few. This means, as I see it, that if there is no repentance within government circles in the United States, European Union, United Nations, so on, we're in for colossal judgments. At present, it's been gentle. It will not be long, only a little while ago, the Lord woke me and said, I was, I'd been talking with people about the drought in, in, in California. Indeed, they, they'd been talking to me about it. I hadn't said anything about it publicly. But uh, the Lord said to me, nobody is listening to me. I will shake this land from coast to coast. If that happens, the economy will finally take a nosedive. Just as it did with the Kobe 
uh, earthquake in Japan destroyed the Japanese economy for 10 to 15 years. Set it right back. It will happen here and said, You cannot play games with the Almighty God. You cannot sort of say, you know, you've got to listen to us. You, you, you're not being very sensible. These covenants you made, they're, they're not sensible. You can't do it. Where are there people who will hear what the Lord is doing? If there are people, surely they will seek the Lord and call upon him to have mercy. Somehow do something with this government here and elsewhere in these Western nations. Could it be possible that God would send yet another awakening, as he has again and again and again in the history of the true church. The Puritans, the Quakers, the Covenanters, the Reformation, the Moravian Revival. You ought to all know about that. (laughs) With Winston-Salem just down the road. The Waldensians, even nearer, (laughs) All these amazing things that God did, he did it again. The first great evangelical awakening that swept millions on both sides of the Atlantic into the kingdom of God. And meant that biblical truths were set at the heart of our constitution, our national constitutions, at, na- at the heart of our national government and society. All that is now being dismembered, broken up, sewn away. We're told that we're entering into a much more beautiful and more sort of uh, pleasant kind of life and society. Not true. With paganism comes demonism. With paganism comes savagery. And we shall live to see it unless the Lord somehow changes the course that our nations are taking. I'm sorry to have to speak like this. It would be much nicer to speak something comforting and strengthening and, uh, and so on. That the Lord is faithful, no doubt. That the over that when people tell me that um, you know the God of the Old Testament is a God of severity and judgment, I don't know what they're talking about. They say the God of the New Testament is all love and grace and mercy. I find that the God of the Old Testament is as much a God of mercy and love and faithfulness as the new. (laughs) It's the same God. I just don't understand how they divide him into two. But they think they can do it. And I always say to them, do you read the book of Revelation? And so often they say, oh no. Why not? Oh, I don't like it. (laughs) It keeps me awake at night. All those judgments and dreadful things that are happening in the book of Revelation. No, 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 no. I'm not going to read it. And certainly not study it. I think the book of Revelation has more severity and more divine judgments than anywhere else in the whole Bible. And that's what we are coming slowly into. I should end here, but I have to tell you about when Daniel began to pray, you remember, he found out there was only 70 years and he had that amazing time when he, 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 he couldn't believe it. He, he 
read in the scroll of Jeremiah. Seventy years is determined for the destruction of Jerusalem. He, he was right next to the sultan, to the emperor, and he totted it up in his head. He said, we've only two years to go. Because the Holy Spirit revealed to him who was the, the king from which it is dated, not Zedekiah, as so many Bible teachers say. It was Jehoiakim. Then he totted up, he said, we've only two years ago. Now, if he'd been one of our dear friends, our charismatic friends, they would have called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego together and said, let's have a ball. We've only got two more years, it's done. The Lord's going to do it. Instead, he did the most extraordinary thing. He wore sackcloth, which is not very pleasant, irritating to his skin, threw ashes on his head, and fasted. And when you read the paraphrase of his intercessory ministry, it is incredible. He never says, they have sinned, they have sinned, they have done this, they have done that. He says, we, we have done it. We have failed. We have broken the covenant and pleaded with the Lord. And I find that so tremendous. And as I've said to people all over the place, <laughs> when they're ready to listen to me, I've said, you know, God was so delighted. He said to the archangel Gabriel, go quickly, tell him, man, oh man, greatly beloved. From the moment you began to intercede, God said, I will do it. But on the way, Gabriel got into a fight with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And then the next moment, the archangel Michael, who stands for Israel, came to his aid. And when finally he got to a to just wake up if you're asleep on this last point. Listen. When Archangel finally got to him and said to him, Oh man, greatly beloved by God, I've come to you with a prophetic understanding. And he gave him what I call the mathematical prophecy. However you look at that prophecy, all those weeks and days add up to the life, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Messiah. It was as if God was saying to, to dear Daniel, Daniel, no wonder we love you so much. You see, you haven't just been praying that these people go back to the promised land. You're not just praying that they build the house of the Lord and all the walls of Jerusalem and all these cities. You had no idea. It is all to do with the coming of the Messiah. They're going back so that the Messiah that all the prophecies concerning the Messiah can be fulfilled. So it is with us. When we really begin to learn what intercession is, it is fellowship with the intercessor, the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. And in some incredible way, it's all to do with the second coming of the Messiah. When we pray that the Lord would have mercy upon the United States and restore her wonderful, the wonderful position she occupied, it's all to do with the coming again of the Messiah Jesus. The same with the United Kingdom, the same with the European nations, and so on. I can't think of anything more wonderful than to be involved in praying back the king. I can't think of anything more wonderful. <laughs> May the Lord challenge you 
bless you, especially for listening to me for so long. Thank you. Lord, we, we come before your throne of grace this night. And Lord, we, we begin the process of opening our ears and bending our knees and saying, forgive us, O God, where we have failed, where we have not sought you and what you want. We pray for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for it to come in all the glory and to bring us into a place, O God, without spot or blemish, that we may be the bride of Christ, who he's coming for. Help us, O Lord, help us, O Lord, to hear during these days. Not only to hear, but to do what you're asking us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.